I'm Franco Terrazano. And I'm Renaud Broussard. And this is the Canadian Taxpayers Podcast, where we're dedicated to lower taxes, less waste, and more accountable government. In this episode, we're going to take a deep dive into guaranteed annual income. Well, it turns out that giving everybody free money is a very, very expensive proposition for taxpayers. And a waste watch, we're going to talk about a government housing corporation spending hundreds of thousands of dollars just to change their name. Yeah, you heard that right. But first, let's talk about some sports. Renault, are you here to rehash yesterday's Habs versus Flames game? <laughs> no, no, not at all. It is definitely not about the game, but it's, it is about the Flames. Uh, we got news recently that the Calgary Flames are not happy getting about $300 million from Calgary taxpayers. They want to get more money out of local taxpayers' pockets to pay for their new stadium project. Yeah, that's really boiling my blood, man, because it turns out the Flames' wealthy owners... They want an extra $70 million. I, I guess, I guess, surprise, surprise, costs are going up, I guess, hey. But, <laughs> Renault, <laughs> is, this, is this all bad news for taxpayers? It is not all bad news for taxpayers, actually. There's, there's a good silver lining here because it means the, the city has actually decided to hit pause on the whole deal before sending them another truckload of taxpayers' cash. But this means that the city could actually back out of that deal and save taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah, that's something that we've actually been calling for here in Alberta. We've been calling on the city of Calgary to pull the plug on the arena deal. You know, they, we, taxpayers certainly couldn't afford it when the city rubber stamped that deal, and we certainly can't afford it now in 2021. Um, but, Renault, I also hear that Calgary is not the only place where millionaire and billionaire sports team owners are vying to get their, their hands on taxpayers' money. You know, I, I heard you talking about a few stories in your neck of the woods out east as well. Yeah, you know how it is. I, when some guy can get government money, everyone else wants to get government money. And unfortunately, that's exactly what's happening in Halifax with the proposed CFL Schooners expansion team and in Montreal, where billionaire real estate tycoon Stephen Brunfman wants to build a new stadium to bring back the Montreal Expos. Sadly, it seems that the government of Quebec just might be interested in putting a whole bunch of money in it. And everywhere, it's always the same story. Sports team owners play to local pride, promise massive economic and tourism benefits, and ask for taxpayers to pay the bill. Yeah, I think I remember something of that sort from back when the Flames first pitched their new arena project. Um, at the time, I believe they said something about how this would have a $500 million impact on the city's GDP and economy. Uh, so, Renault, I mean, do these benefits ever really materialize? Oh, hardly. First thing is that in both of those project cases, at least out east, uh, those are not stadiums for existing teams. They're stadiums for prospective teams. So what the promoters behind those projects are asking for is for taxpayers to pay a good part, if not all, of their stadiums so that then they can showcase those facilities once they're built to the leagues and argue that, uh, you know, now that they have a facility, they should get a team. Yeah, and, and let's remember, folks, uh, real life isn't a Kevin Costner movie. So just because they build it doesn't mean the sports team is going to come. Isn't that right? Yeah, sadly, we've got a little bit of experience with that here in Quebec. Uh, that's what happened a couple of years ago, actually, when the Quebec City Nordiques uh, were supposed to be brought back. So the government of Quebec promptly forked over $370 million to build the Videotron Center. Uh, and, you know, now uh, taxpayers have to pay the bills for this. They have a decent amount of debt as a result. Uh, and we don't have any Quebec City Nordiques team playing at it. Uh, actually, what's, what is being used as right now 
is the largest and most expensive junior league facility in the country, housing the Quebec City Ramparts. Oh my goodness. I mean, $370 million is a huge price tag for a junior league stadium. Um, but Reno, what, what about the economic benefits from existing sports franchises, right? So the Flames are already an existing league or they're already in an existing league and, and, they, and they're claiming that their new stadium would be a significant boost uh, for the local economy. Well, you really should take these plans with a grain of salt. Uh, don't forget that when these sports promoters pitch those numbers, their main objective is to sell us on the idea that we need to pay for their stadiums. So basically, they're classier and better paid version of used car salesmen. And it tend to fudge numbers quite a bit. Yeah, and I think we should just remember, too, when we're talking about these sellers, a lot of the times we're talking about the politicians who are trying to sell, <laughs> who are trying to sell us on this. But really, they should be sticking up for taxpayers, right? Um, but anyways, tell me how the numbers don't always add up. Well, the first thing comes from how they calculate their impact. Uh, take tourism impacts, for instance. Just how often have you made travel plans to go to another country solely because you wanted to go and see a hockey game? And let me clear, be clear here. We're not talking about going to see the Stanley Cup games. We're just talking about going to see any regular uh, midweek game. Yeah, yeah, not too often. Exactly. And, you know, you're, you're not the only one. That's, in most cases, people's decisions to travel rest on a whole bunch of factors. And then the sports games are just one out of many things they consider. But when sports team promoters make their case, they assume that every single dollar tourist spends in the city before, during, and after the game is justified entirely by the fact that they went to see that game, as if it was the only reason for which they travel. Okay, that just sounds like some bad economics. Oh, it, it really is. But the second thing is, you're not talking about economic benefits. You're talking about economic impact. And it might seem like semantics, but the difference is very real. Economic benefits means that the, G the city's GDP will increase as a result. What economic impact is, on the other hand, is any increase it would have had, so any benefit, but as well as any spending that gets displaced. It's, it's including spending that people would have done on regular nights out at a restaurant and instead choose to spend at the stadium. All right. So break it down for us um, in economic terms then. Are there any benefits? Is it worthwhile for taxpayers to be spending a few millions or in some cases hundreds of millions to help build these stadiums? Oh, hardly. Uh, most of the economic benefits from sports teams are captured not by taxpayers and the local economy, but rather by the owners and the players. As the University of Chicago economist Alan Sanderson put it, if you wanted to inject money into the local economy, it would be better to drop it off from a helicopter than invest it in a new stadium. <laughs> That's a pretty funny quote, and thanks for bringing that to our attention. Now, I do have to say, warning, if, if you're a politician listening to this Canadian Taxpayers podcast, we don't actually think that you should take a hel helicopter full of our tax dollars and drop <laughs> it into the local economy. We're not actually recommending that, just in case you're a politician listening. Um, but really, folks, we also have to remember that these owners of, of professional sports teams, they're business owners, and, and they can, they should, and they have been able to build their new stadiums privately. You know what I like to say in Calgary is that us Calgarians, we love our flames, we want to continue to support our flames, but through tickets, not taxes. This is Renault, and we're back here again with you for Deep Dive, the part of the show where we dive deeper into important stories affecting Canadian taxpayers. And I'm here with our interim Ontario director, Jay Goldberg. So how are you, Jay? Doing well. How are you, Renault? Not too bad. Okay. 
So the Liberals and the NDP both had their policy conventions a few weeks ago, and the delegates at both conventions voted to support what he called a guaranteed annual income right here in Canada. Taxpayers better be prepared because this policy initiative comes with a massive price tag. That's right, Renault. Just for a quick refresher, uh, a guaranteed annual income, it's the idea that the government would make sure every Canadian receives a minimum amount of money each year, and this would either be through working or, for those who aren't working, through a payment from the federal government. But of course, any payment from the government is ultimately funded by taxpayers. All right, that's, that's the part that most of these politicians don't want you to remember. Exactly. So proposals for guaranteed annual income, they're either based on the idea that everyone should receive a set amount of money as the government payment each year, or only those who don't earn a minimum amount of money should get a payment from the government. But either way, both of these possibilities would cost taxpayers a heck of a lot of money. Okay, but let's be realistic here. We've got a huge deficit already. We're borrowing about 30 cents out of every dollar we spend. So... How likely is is it that such an expensive plan would come to be? I think that taxpayers should be worried. Obviously, we saw in the federal budget that they were prepared to introduce $100 billion of new spending. Uh, We also saw that uh, the Liberal and NDP conventions, delegates there overwhelmingly voted at both conventions to support this idea. So I do think it's quite possible that we could see, either from the Liberals or the NDP, a proposal in an election Uh, to perhaps go down this road. So I think it's important for us to remember that even if the Liberals didn't include in their budget this year, the chatter about it, the attractiveness of it, and the willingness of the current government to spend a heck of a lot of money, I definitely wouldn't take this off the table. And I think it might find its way into a future budget or an election campaign platform. So obviously, the idea of a guaranteed annual income has been around for quite a long time. Uh, why does it seem to be gaining traction in certain circles right now? Well, in short, I think it's really to do with the pandemic. There's many people in political circles who are wanting to basically use the CERB program, which is rolled out as a pandemic relief measure, as a model to embrace a permanent guaranteed annual income in Canada. Uh, I think it's true that a lot of Canadians supported the government's introduction of CERB for a limited period of time to help people to deal with the pandemic, but I don't think many taxpayers were expecting to see this program potentially become a permanent reality. I think that taxpayers know that permanent government payments, like guaranteed annual income, it would discourage work, and our taxes, according to some studies, would have to literally double to pay for it. That's quite expensive. You know, Folks, it's tax season. Just look at your tax bill. Look at how much you're spending. To, you're sending to the federal government, and imagine that doubling. I, for one, know it's not something I can afford. But what about the argument that Canada already has some programs that are universal? That this would just be another way of strengthening our social safety net. Well, Renaud, we do have things like the Guaranteed Income Supplement for seniors. We also have the Canada Child Benefit to help parents with childcare costs. But the important thing is that these programs are means tested and they're geared at people who aren't working. So obviously for seniors, for kids, we're not expecting them to work, but a guaranteed annual income would apply to working age adults who should in most cases be supporting themselves through going to work like millions of hardworking Canadian taxpayers do every day. Um, We also have programs that are currently in place right now that help people who have lost their jobs. 
so I don't think many Canadians would say that we should be giving money every month to Canadians, regardless of how hard they're looking for a job or whether they even want to have a job at all. You know, I've, I think the biggest shocker when it comes to the guaranteed annual income is just how much it would cost because sending everyone money isn't free. It has a huge cost. Uh, when you were talking to me about this, you mentioned two studies, uh, one from Kevin Milligan at the University of British Columbia and a report by the Parliamentary Budget Office. So what, what did they have to say in terms of how much this would cost taxpayers? So let me talk about Milligan's study first. It's the more expensive study, but it could be the more likely scenario going forward that a government might introduce. Mm-hmm. So basically, Professor Milligan has estimated that introducing a guaranteed annual income here in Canada, which in his version would mean paying every Canadian citizen $1,200 a month, that this would have a net cost of $400 billion dollars which is more than double of the federal government's current annual revenue. That means that taxes would literally have to double for us to pay for it. Okay, but one of the arguments I hear from uh, supporters of guaranteed income is that we could save a lot of money by canceling a lot of those programs and just introducing a guaranteed minimum uh, income instead. So is that accurate? So some money would definitely be saved. Uh, Milligan's study admits that, but he figures that we would really only save about $100 billion by canceling things like old age security and the Canada Child Benefit. Um, But since giving every Canadian $1,200 a month would actually cost $500 billion, we're still looking at that $400 billion net price tag. Oh, so that's a net price tag. That's not just what a program would cost. That's even accounting for the cancellation of all those other programs. So according to Milligan, every Canadian taxpayer would have to double their tax bill. Like once again, folks, this is tax season. Look at your tax bill. Imagine that doubling. Yeah, that's exactly right. Federal revenue right now is $400 billion. If they're going to double spending, they're going to have to figure out how to pay for it and hold on to your wallet, folks. To make things even worse, though, Milligan also figures that on top of these costs, there might be some Canadians who might have been working before, but decide not to work given these payments. And that would mean less tax revenue because you have fewer people paying income taxes. Okay, so I know it is, it's clear that it's quite expensive, but I know there's a lot of people that say that we could just have a phased out guaranteed annual income. So instead of giving every Canadian the same amount of cash every month, uh, it would be adjusted based on the income they, they have, and that would bring down the cost. So what can you tell us about that? So it's definitely true that this version of a guaranteed annual income would cost less, but the cost is still incredibly high. So the Parliamentary Budget Office, they did a study. Uh, they're basing their idea on starting out a guaranteed annual income of $2,000 a month. This is based mm-hmm. on CERB payments. But the idea is that this $2,000 per month would be phased out as people's incomes start to go up. Now, the PBO offers a few different scenarios about how quickly things are gonna be phased out, but basically the bottom line they put forward is that the cost of a universal basic income, even if we do the phase out, is gonna cost somewhere between $90 billion a year and $200 billion a year. And as I said, that's just depending on when you phase out the income. So even if we take a middle number, say 150 billion a year, it's still a heck of a lot of money. And it means that taxes would have to go up by 50% to pay for it. 
And that's the affordable option. You know, that's that's still quite expensive. Once again, folks, it's tax season. Look at your tax bill. Imagine your federal taxes going up by 50%. You'd be spending sending that much more money to the feds. It is very, very expensive. Yeah, no refunds for everybody under that scenario. <laughs> I think it's also important to remember that uh, economists who have supported this idea in the past, the idea of a guaranteed annual income, some like Milton Friedman, for example, They've said it's only a good idea if it's introduced while eliminating other government programs like welfare and old age pensions. The problem is at neither the Liberal nor the NDP conventions did we see any suggestion that introducing a guaranteed annual income should lead to scrapping these other government programs. It seems that they want to have their cake and eat it too, and that would cost taxpayers big time. And even if we were to cut out all of the programs with, that a guaranteed annual income could replace, this is what Professor Milligan was looking at, we would still end up with a $400 billion bill and no way to pay for it other than raising taxes. That's a really important thing to remember because when politicians talk about introducing a guaranteed annual income, they don't talk about removing any of those programs. They just say, we're going to add it on top of all the other programs. So the concept goes from being simply unaffordable to extremely unaffordable. So Indy NJ, what, what should our listeners take away from this? Well, I think the bottom line is that a guaranteed annual income is insanely expensive. And even a means-tested version would cost, at the very minimum, this was the most conservative estimate from the PBO, mm-hmm. $90 billion a year. And I don't think anyone should expect for a moment that the Trudeau government would decide to eliminate these other welfare state programs to introduce this new one. So unless people listening to this podcast want to see their taxes go up dramatically, I really don't think this is a good idea at all. Well, thanks for bringing this up, Jay. Thanks, Renaud. It's time for Waste Watch. This is the part of the show when we make fun of the dumb things that governments are doing with your hard-earned money. And our investigative journalist, James Wood, he's back with yet another super goofy story about the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. James, how is this even possible for a crown corporation to waste money on dumb things like this when they have no competition? It sounds like a tall order. It it definitely does. But I mean, CMHC is back at it again. Last time I was here, we were talking about them not being entirely honest about funding a study looking at changes to home taxation, if you can recall. Yes. Not being entirely honest is a nice way of putting it. Uh, That's where they spent around $250,000, quarter million in taxpayers' money, on a study uh, conducted with UBC that was going to include taking a hard, long look at taxing people on the sale of their primary residences, meaning the homes you're living in right now. CMHC denied it, and then we found documents to prove it. In fact, you did. So what's happening with them this time? So it turns out they spent over $920,000 on a rebranding project, and we only know they spent that much because of a series of committee questions in Ottawa, a tip requests, and eventually a committee motion that compelled CMHC to release the full information. On top of all that, the rebrand, the very expensive rebrand, was purely cosmetic, no changes to their legal name. So it basically amounted to a, a, a fresh coat of paint and changing nothing of any weight. Okay, for folks who are confused, you have a reason to be confused. CMHC is a government-controlled crown corporation. This is not a smartphone or bubblegum or a new flavor of soft drink. 
there's nothing sexy about CMHC, nothing. There's no need for marketing or branding or rebranding, especially at our expense. To me, this sounds like they just want to be cool kids. You know, other corporations get to do it. Microsoft gets to change. Why can't CMHC? So why did they blow nearly a million dollars on this? And why did they take so long to fess up about it? So it goes like this. In September, CMHC announced to be changing its name to Housing Canada because it thought the current name put too much focus on home ownership. <laughs> but that's their whole point. That's their job at CMHC is to focus on home ownership. Yeah, it, that was it was a bit of a goofy argument at the time, but evidently not. Uh, Housing Canada was going to be the wave of the future. But so last November, Conservative MP Jamie Schmale asked now former CEO of CMHC, Evan Sedell, about the cost of the project during a meeting of the Commons Human Resource Committee. At the time, Sedell said there had been no public money spent on the rebrand. He didn't mention how much had actually been spent. And then in December, our friends over at Black Fox Reporter ran a story after records were released by ATIP showing just over $120,000 had been spent on the rebranding study. Then in February, Schmail put a motion forward at committee directing CMHC to disclose full costs and for Mr. Sadal to clarify his past statements. It passed without opposition, and CMHC sent a letter to committee in the middle of March with all costs revealed. That sound you hear is me banging my head against my notebook. <laughs> this sounds like it took a lot of time and for no good reason. Given our previous experience, though, with Mr. Sedell and how he communicates, I'm quite curious to know the contents of that letter. What did it say? So I won't read the whole thing here because that would take a very long time. But to sum it up, uh, he wholeheartedly defended the whole project, the way he described it to MPs at the time, and the amount of money that was actually used. According to Sedell, the money that was put towards the project wasn't coming from the money they get from Parliament, so that makes everything all fine, including the way he explained it to the MPs. No, it, it doesn't actually make it all fine. <laughs> Taxpayers own CMHC. This is not some, you know outside corporation that doesn't have anything to do with Canada. If CMHC is wasting money, it is wasting our money. Isn't that all of our money? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. Like you're exactly right. And anyone with have brain can see that explanation is an extremely flimsy defense. But either way, I'll embed the whole, the whole letter in our online story so everyone can see exactly what he said. Now, of course, uh, Mr. Schmail wasn't happy with how things had gone either. And he told us as much. It's obviously very disappointing that he chose to answer those questions in that kind of way. It is a parliamentary committee, after all. And, and the fact that he knowingly or unknowingly thought that we would never follow up on, on his answers to confirm the truth to them shocks me as well. Okay, this is just really bizarre behavior coming from a crown corporation that is just supposed to quietly be efficient and boring. Know your role, shut your mouth, and do your job. But no, they want to waste money too. So what are we left with then, James, after this whole circus? Uh, what we're left with is $123,000, sorry, $123,200 of branding study work that came up with a new name and what seems to be a thicker Chevron-style logo. There also appears to have been some thoughts about changing the color of the Chevron from red to something else because red was too liberal and hard to work with. Oh, no. 
uh, other parts of the records included chatter about uh, how these these new colors would change things for the whole company and people's <laughs> hair was standing up when they were watching the videos about it. It was some magical thing. It's like, guys, what is this? Either way, from Sadal's letter, it looks like CMHC ended up keeping the red coloring for their Chevron logo and the rest of the money was being spent on the back end, changing emails and that kind of general transition type expense. Okay. I'm a child of the 80s. I grew up on cool Pepsi and Coke commercials. This is not what this is. This is a really big waste of taxpayers' money. But there's one little glimmer of hope you mentioned in there. Did you say that this was on hold? Yeah, so it's on hold until the end of the pandemic, whenever that is. And there's also something in the records about how they're looking for one more level of approval, which was uh, even more fun to read. Unfortunately... The money that's been spent so far is spent and gone. Okay, but I'm still grasping at my loonies here. So could we still save some of the money on this, like the cost for signage and all the rest of it, if this rebrand just stops or it's put on hold forever? Could we do that? Oh, I mean, basically, yes, they could. If they kind of put the put the brakes on it and just keep on putting the brakes on it, that would save whatever might else be expended. And it looks like opposition MPs would want to pursue that happening. I'd asked uh, housing critic Brad Viss about the possibility. He echoed uh, Schmel's disappointments about CMHC not telling the whole truth. And he said the Conservative Party would push to end the rebrand project. So we'll, we'll keep an eye on this. We'll keep watching this and see what happens. Is there any magic in the real thing? Taste of the new generation. No, this is CMHC. <laughs> it's supposed to be regulating our mortgages. Okay, so anyone wanting to know more uh, can head over to our website. They can read the full story there. And don't forget, while you're there, sign our petition against the home equity tax. Thanks for listening. All right, folks, that's the show. Thank you for joining us. But before we leave, we have a bit of fan mail to share with you. Renault, what do you got? Well, it's not just Toronto that's building expensive parks. Montreal is trying to build a billion-dollar park despite having a $300 million budget hole. And when I pointed that out, one of my local city councillors, a man named Craig Sauvet, decided that it was time to, to call us out on uh, the fact that we complain about outlandish spending. As he said, a cynic is someone who knows the prices of everything and the value of nothing. Now, this is a guy who doesn't have any proposal to balance the budget, but is happy to pay a billion dollars for a new park with our 300 million in the hole. I'd just like to know, how many quotes are we, uh, are we away from a uh, balanced budget? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Okay, thanks, Renaud. And, and a huge thank you to our investigative journalist and our podcast editor, James Wood. He edits it. He makes it sound good. He makes it sound like we know what we're talking about. So a huge thank you to you, Jimbo. And also, please, please, please like, share, subscribe, and, and please pass along the podcast to some of your friends and family. It really helps us get the word out. Hi, I'm Scott Hennig, President of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. If you've got another minute, I'd like to ask you to think about the one person you know that would really enjoy listening to this podcast. Do us a favor and do them a favor and send them a quick note to let them know about it. At the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we believe there is power in numbers. That's why we've worked so hard to build an army of taxpayers who are ready to push back. 
And we did it because people like you shared our work with that one person that they knew would really appreciate taking part. Thanks for listening, and thanks for doing your part to make Canada a better place.